Good evening. If you have your uh, Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 15. If you need a Bible, I think there's one in the back table somewhere. Uh, you can pick it up. Matthew chapter 15. Now, as we're going to start in verse 29 of chapter 15, we're going to go to a place where Jesus is going to do some miraculous things and then feed 4,000 people. But context is always so important. And whenever we, we just dive in, we need to remember where we are so that we can get the right perspective on what's taking place. The last passage that we looked at, Jesus had just healed a Canaanite woman's child who, who she had begged and and Jesus ignored her while she was begging for him to heal her and we talked about the awkward situation and how Jesus was really testing the disciples to see where their hearts were at at this time and they were saying Lord make her go away she's bugging us and Jesus commended her for having such incredible faith and the reason this was important is because Jesus has withdrawn from the region where the Jewish people would reside, and he's now gone into a predominantly Gentile area. And he is now focused in this area, and that's why this was such a prevalent uh, situation that took place. And he's continuing in this region. In verse 29, it says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Again, here we have a few verses that are given to and express an incredible series of, of events. Imagine being a part of this and you'd be just blown away, this whole group of people bringing everyone who was sick around them. And remember, too, the time that this is taking place where the average life expectancy wasn't near what it is today, where people, if they got a fever, were very likely to die, where the birth or the child... Uh, mortality rate wasn't as good as it is. There were so many things that could happen that would today seem simple to, to get over at that time were detrimental. And so there were a lot more sick people. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of sick people around and they're bringing them all to Jesus and he's healing them all and the people are amazed. And so there's these few verses that are talking about what's going on. But, but it's almost like Matthew is trying to point to something bigger. He's trying to lead somewhere, and he's using these verses to say something is about to take place. And we're going to see exactly what's taking place. Something bigger is going to take place, and we're going to get into the feeding. And this is almost setting up the stage for that. And so after this miraculous things, and take note that at the end of verse 31, it says, and they praised the God of Israel. That's key. That's telling us who is in this audience, so to speak. People who are not familiar or not those who may be on a regular 
basis worshipped or praised the God of Israel. He's talking about foreigners, strangers, Gentiles, the people who were looked down upon by the Jewish people, those who there was a lot of prejudice against. And so now we have the framework of what's taking place and who these people are that are coming to Jesus. And so we continue. Verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why would Matthew write about this miracle when in just a couple of chapters previously, he'd written about 5,000. Isn't it like a similar miracle? It's like, oh, 5,000. This is actually less. There's only 4,000, not counting women and children. Why is he writing about the same miracle? Why would he take so much time? I mean, he took that papyrus, you know, which was probably difficult to get and to write it all by hand. I mean, it wasn't no computers and things. Why would he take the time to write about this miracle again? Any thoughts? <laughs> like that. Hmm. Anything different? There's a few things I want you to notice that are different as we look at this. The last miracle with the 5,000, who brought it to the attention that the people were there for a long time. Was it the disciples or Jesus? It was the disciples. They said, Jesus, these people, you you better tell them to go away because they're going to pass out. They've been with us a long time. This time it's Jesus. What's the difference? Remember our context? Remember our setting? Remember our framework? Well, yeah, he wasn't in mourning. I mean, his cousin John was beheaded last time. Yes, you don't have to raise your hand. This isn't school. It's okay. Maybe um, maybe because these were Gentiles. Maybe Uh because Jesus is showing that he had a heart for them, or maybe the uh, disciples were showing some prejudice to him, or didn't have the same feeling. Exactly. That's why Jesus starts off and says, I have compassion for these people. Okay, he's dealing with the Gentile people, and he says, I have compassion for these people. Remember the Canaanite woman and her begging Jesus and the disciples. What did they say? Lord, tell her to go away. She's bugging us. And Jesus showed mercy on her child. And now here is Jesus saying, I have compassion 
on these people. There's a good chance, based on the context that we have from the Canaanite woman, from the fact that this is, they're praising the God of Israel, showing that these people were indeed foreigners in the region that they were in, that the disciples had a little bit of an attitude against them. So they were not so moved to consider them. And it could be that this miracle is taking place to bring to bear what was really taking place in the prejudice of the disciples. To show that they were blind to the needs of the people because they didn't really care about the people. I remember years ago, I worked at a guitar store in Pomona. And I remember we'd get all kinds of people coming in. And everyone wanted to try out, you know, the instruments. And, you know, you have your cheap instruments, and then you have kind of harder to reach the expensive stuff. And whenever someone would want to try out the expensive stuff, I'd kind of size them up, try and see who this person is, see if they had $1,000 to throw down on a guitar. Because if they didn't look like they had $1,000, I didn't really want to spend the time to work with that person because, you know, because I don't want to work for nothing. And I remember one time this guy came in, and this guy just was pretty scraggly. He's definitely a stoner. I could tell by his fragrance um, and he came walking in and as he, it was really funny we had this one hallway where you'd walk into the room where the amps were and there was a heater vent on the ceiling and it was in the winter time and so the heater was on and he walked under the heater vent and he's like whoa I just got a rush it's so intense and I go no no it's the heater vent it's right above you and go, oh and he panicked for a little bit and so he tried out some of the instruments, and then, you know, I was like, okay, I, I put up with this time, and, and I took this guitar, because it was like a $1,000 guitar, and I thought, well, yeah, this guy, okay, yeah, whoa, yeah, that's really nice, yeah, and then he, I said, okay, and I took the guitar, and I went to put it back, and he started walking out, and the owner of the store says, hey, are you interested in that guitar? He goes, yeah, I am, Goes, but I don't have a thousand bucks. I forget, it was like 1100 And he goes, well, how much do you have? He goes, well, I've got like 800 bucks. And I was like, you got 800 bucks? And the owner goes, well, I'll make you a deal for 800 bucks on that guitar. He goes, you will? He goes, yeah. And so all of a sudden, the guy starts pulling out of his pocket. Out of the right pocket, he pulls out a few hundred dollar bills. Out of the left pocket, he pulls out a few hundred dollar bills. Out of his back pocket, he's just reaching hundred dollar bills out of all these places. I'm like thinking, what on earth are you? Where did, where did you, I don't want to know where you got the money, but what, what's, and I just remember thinking, oh my gosh. The guy wanted to buy a guitar and I was oblivious to it because I sized him up wrong. And I wonder how many times we size people up wrong. We look at them and we judge them. Oh, you're this kind of person. Oh, you're not interested in God because of this. Because this is in your life. Because you do this. Because you, you, know, you drink. Because whatever it is, you start putting these things on and we start labeling people and we're blind to what's really going on inside them. And while we're standoffish and we're ignorant to what's taking place, Jesus says, I have compassion on them. I care about them. I want to feed them. And you see, they were praising the God of Israel because of the 
miraculous things Jesus was doing among them. And God is always wanting to do the miraculous things around those people who are distant. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. It's a passage that I go to often because I like it. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. Here we have the framework Solomon is dedicating the temple. The temple that David, his father, couldn't build, that was given to him to build. And now as Solomon is dedicating this temple, part of his prayer to God takes place in chapter 8, verse 41 in 1 Kings. And he says, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. You see, even in the Old Testament, when Solomon is dedicating the temple of God, he says, God, when the foreigner, the outsider, the person who doesn't know you comes here and prays and asks something of you, answer them just so that they will know who you really are. That you are the God of Israel, that you do hear, that you do answer. So that they may come to know you. Listen to them. How many times do we have it in our mind? Or maybe we've even heard, well, God doesn't hear sinners. Oh, you know, God is not going to, if they're living this way, God doesn't. God is postured and bent and is leaning for them and saying, please just ask me something. I am so desiring to show you who I am. Are we postured the same way? Are we desiring the same? Are we compassionate for them? Are you guys cold? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can we turn? <laughs> Just interrupted the mood. The spirit was really moving. I think we need to be aware of these things. What is our posture towards people? Are we compassionate? Or are we blind and are we prejudiced? And the prejudice can be in so many ways. It can be based on ethnicity. It could be based on social class. It can be based on faith and religion. You see someone and you know they're of a different religion and so you're automatically assumed that they aren't hungry and thirsty. And Jesus is saying, I'm compassionate for them. I'm wanting to feed them. I'm wanting to do the miraculous for them so that they will know that the God of Israel is true. And we need to be aware of our own prejudices that take place. And so we see the difference here is Jesus brings this up. Last time it was the disciples. We also see and recognize that 
Jesus still has compassion. He still cares. And we also see that the disciples still don't know what to do when he says, let's feed them. They're like, we ain't got enough. They, they just said this. They just seen this. They just realized that Jesus had done a miracle as big. In fact, it was bigger. There was a thousand more people. But they still like, Lord, where are we going to get the food? And you, you got to know that Jesus is saying, well, let's feed them. And they're like, Oh no, we're here again. The test again. Uh, how do we deal with this? And they don't know how. Have you ever been there? Where your, your faith is being challenged and it's like, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just don't know how to do it. I don't have the ability to make bread or fish happen. I tried. I, I, when you weren't looking, I was breaking bread and it was just still bread. And I, uh, Lord, where do we buy food? They're just helpless. They're, they're locked into their mindset. They're blinded by the material. God is wanting to do more, but they can only see what's in front of them. And again, Jesus is teaching them, well, first of all, you need to have faith in me. Second of all, you need to realize that God is able to do and cares to do more than what you probably do. And so the same things happen. Jesus tells them, hey, let's feed them. They say, we don't know how to do that. And once again, they're not only taught to trust in Christ, but they're shown to have mercy of Christ towards those around them. And, and I think that's something that we can all identify with. There are so many times in my life where I, I am faithless, where I know God is still with me, but I'm overcome with the circumstance. I feel terrible. Maybe I'm sick physically. Maybe I'm financially stressed. Problems are up to here, and so all I see is my problems, and God's down here. And I forget all the times that God has helped me and has rescued me and if I could see the Lord, I would see that he's up here and my problems are really down here. But my eyes are just focused on the wrong things. And it's easy for us to get focused on the wrong things. And so we see that Jesus again does the miraculous. And when it says seven basketfuls are broken pieces were Left over. These baskets are actually bigger than the baskets, so it's probably actually more, even though there was 12 baskets in the last time. Last time they were little bread baskets. These are probably fish baskets because it's a different word. And so there's a lot more that comes back with them so that they're probably taking that with them. And, and then he sends the crowd away, and he goes into the boat, and then he leaves for this other area of Magadan, which is where Mary of Magdalene is probably from. And we continue on now as the Pharisees in verse 16 and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. You got to kind of chuckle when you hear this, knowing what has just been taking place over the past few chapters. I mean, he's healed all kinds of people. He's fed 5,000 and now he's fed 4,000. And these religious leaders said, Show us a sign. 
what kind of sign do you need? What, what sign is going to make you believe? If you haven't believed this, what is it going to take for you to believe? And he replies to them, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. What a great scene. Again, there's so many great scenes that could make just little movies in themselves. Here are these religious people. You've got to know, first of all, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't see things eye to eye. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. One was kind of more liberal. One is more legalistic. But they're getting together because they're, they're out to get Jesus. And they get together and say, let's go, Jesus. Okay, Jesus, we want you to show us a sign from heaven. Prove to us that you're really from God. And really? You want to look at the 4,000 I just fed? You want to look at the people who were blind, the people who were crippled, the people who are deaf, who are healed now? But you need more. You need more. And it's interesting how the foreigners praised the God of Israel, but the ones who supposedly knew the God of Israel wanted more. Something takes place in religion if we're not careful, where it becomes a matter of theology, it becomes a matter of what we know instead of who we know. And they were so wrapped up on making sure that everything was according to their traditions, as we've seen before, that when Jesus wasn't fitting their mold, nothing he could do was going to satisfy them. And this is a perfect example of those who have eyes but cannot see. How is it that you have eyes but you cannot see? It's not a matter of you need more miracles. I mean, why didn't Jesus just do another miracle? Okay, poof. Watch me call fire down from, why, you know, to me, it's like, well, why don't you just do something else? Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. I mean, presto, I'm going to prove to you there. Now, now do you believe? But remember, Jesus only did the things the father told him to do. He wasn't there for show. It was there for a purpose. And here is an instance where it doesn't matter what you see, you're not going to believe if it doesn't fit in with what you want and expect and already believe. And so he gives them a little bit of an illustration. This is the only time that he uses the phrase, the signs of the times. I know we hear it all the time in you know prophecy things, but it's only used once in scripture. And it's interesting that the same indication, the sky is red, it means two different things, okay? In the evening, you say, oh, it's going to be fair because the sky is red. In the morning, you see the sky is red and it's going to be stormy. It's the same thing. It just means two different things based on the morning or the evening, based on your perspective. 
And so Jesus is saying, oh, you can, you have the ability to see from different perspectives this simple sign, but you can't get out of your perspective and see things that's really happening because you're locked in to how you see things. It's amazing how our perspective can blind us. Just like that guy who came into the music center. I just could not see this guy pulling 800 bucks out of his pockets. Just didn't, he didn't smell like he had 800 bucks. <laughs> and it blinded my ability to see things differently. And we can be so blinded by our perspective, especially a religious perspective. And we need to be careful. In fact, Jesus goes on and he tells us. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation look for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of Jonah. This is the same thing he said in chapter 12, verse 39. He's repeated this idea about Jonah, and he's definitely referring to the resurrection. You want a sign? This is, this is the only sign you're going to get. I'm going to conquer death. But he said, even if someone rises from the dead, yet some people will still not believe in his parable. And why does he call them a wicked and adulterous generation? The adulteress is speaking of a spiritual adultery. You see, their faith was not in God. Their faith was in their religion. Their faith was that they were right, that they were children of Abraham. Their faith was in their genealogy, their lineage, their tradition. And so Jesus says, you're an adulterous generation because you love your faith rather than God. Now, this is a challenge for us, and, and Jesus is going to go on and warn his disciples. But we need to ask ourselves, are our traditions blinding us from our God? Do we take the scriptures and use them to frame a religion that makes us comfortable? And yet keeps us from actually seeing and worshiping the living God. It seems that Jesus is always rebuking and dealing with the religious people and is always bending over to help those who are trying to reach out. And so we see that happening here. And then we're going to see here that Jesus doesn't stop and give them any more explanation. He, he doesn't stop to try and help them understand anymore. He kind of knows their frame of mind and just leaves. He just kind of slams them and then takes off. And when he went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Really? What about the 4,000? 
What about the 5,000? But isn't it so true that we get so materialistic that we will attribute any difficulty, any problem, any trial that we have on the lack of things that we do? Maybe you've said this. You know, things go wrong. Your, your car breaks down. You get a flat tire. Engine blows. And you think it's because I didn't go to church Sunday. Anyone ever said something like that? It's because I didn't, I didn't pray this morning. I didn't read my devotion. I didn't have breakfast with Jesus. I, I didn't do that this morning. And so that's why this bad thing has happened to me. And the disciples go right there. Beware of the yeast of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, oh, beware. Oh, no. Did you bring bread? No, you were supposed to bring bread. I didn't bring bread. What are we going to do? He's upset because he knows we don't have any bread. And immediately they think about bread. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Now, we can laugh at this at their expense, and I, it's fun too. But the truth is, you and I are in their shoes so many times. So many times. Oh, it's because I didn't do this. It's because I didn't. And the Lord's saying, really? You're missing the point here. You're focused on the wrong thing. I, I'm not worried about the bread. I'm not worried about the tradition. I'm not worried about, you know, well, this bread was maybe unclean because all these Gentiles touched it because they had seven baskets somewhere. I don't know if they brought it with them or maybe they threw it out because they figured it was unclean. Who knows? But Jesus said, I'm not talking about bread. Don't you remember? Verse 9, do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Another gospel says he was talking about the hypocrisy. Beware of their hypocrisy, that their tradition has blinded them from seeing the truth about who God is. We can get so focused on the wrong things that we miss the right thing. We get so focused on what the legal things are to do, what we have to do to please God, that we can miss God altogether by just doing things. And it's true in any relationship. That's why we went through that relationship series on Sundays. Because it's so important to recognize what relationships consist of. And they don't consist of just doing a series of actions. I've shared this before. I, I, I'm not going to have a, a healthy relationship with my wife if I just write down a list and I say, as long as I do these things, 
I'm good. And I've got, you know, a page list of things that are all there to do. Okay, I get up in the morning, say, good morning, sweetheart. I love you. Give her a kiss on the cheek. Make her coffee. These would be good things to do. <laughs> She's shaking her head. Uh, but that list doesn't give me the relationship. In fact, if I just follow the list and don't actually love her, then I'm missing the point. And that's what we tend to do is want the list. Show me what I need to do. Just tell me what I, I have to do. But we don't want to engage our lives in the relationship of God. And that's what he's after. It's not about the bread. It's about the teaching. What was their teaching? Follow our rules, follow our regulations, and you're right with God if you're right with us. If you're not right with us, you're not right with God. Does that sound familiar? Is there any other places that might show up in our lives? And think about the whole context of what we're dealing with here. The, the woman who's a Canaanite, the multitudes that are of mixed beliefs and Jesus having compassion on them. And Jesus is saying, don't get lost in the legal things. Know who I am. I'm compassionate. I'm loving. I'm reaching for these people. Be careful that you don't get caught up and become close-minded closed heart towards the things and the people that God is trying to reach because of your traditions. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Two questions Jesus asked. Remember, they're, they're going into Caesarea. Caesarea Philippi is the seat of the Roman government there in Judea. It's a fitting place to ask them about beliefs and to reveal himself as the Messiah, the Christ. And in the first question, he says, who do others say that I am? And they give him three answers, and all those answers are connected to figures of the past, not to him being unique. John the Baptist, raised from the dead, Elijah or Jeremiah, a couple of the prophets, and they each had specific reasons why they believed Jesus was connected to them, and, and some of them are good reasons. But they're all tied to the past. Why would Jesus ask them, what are people saying about me? 
Why do you think he asked them that question? Any thoughts? Yeah, they're, he's trying to find out what the word is and are they, he's going to say or ask them, are, are you in line with what people are thinking? Because many times what we get our information from is from the people around us. And Jesus is asking them, what are people saying who I am? And they gave the answers, all tied to the past. But then Jesus asks the important question, what about you? And I think that's the important question. Because we like to identify ourselves with a group, maybe a denomination. What do they say? Oh, they say this. Well, what about you? They may be right, they may be wrong, but what about you? What do you believe? Who do you think I am? And I think Christ asks us all that question. Who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? Is it someone tied to the past? Is it a character that lived 2,000 years ago? Or is it more than that? You see, the idea of the Christ, the Messiah, is connected to a living promise that God made, a covenant that God made. That wasn't just a covenant in the past, but it was a covenant that was to live on and continue on and lives on. And so when he asked them, who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? When Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, he says, you are the promise that God has given, you are the son of the living God. And, and that answer that Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. That's such an interesting passage. I want to talk about it just for a minute. Even though it was not revealed by flesh and blood, it still had to be believed. In other words, it wasn't the things outside that convinced Peter that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God. It was something that took place within his own heart. God had to reveal that to him. God had to make him aware of that. And God has to do that with each of us. It's not a matter of how much information we can get to know this. Flesh and blood didn't reveal. It wasn't because you were a Jew and because you knew the scriptures that this is why it's revealed to you. It's because the spirit of God made it a reality to you. I know I've been talking with some of you about just faith and how do we know that this is true and how apologetics can help us with information, but information will not bring us into relationship or knowledge of God. What can tell us about who God is? What information can you get that's going to say, okay, yeah, God is there? 
either you will see him in everything because that's your perspective. He's revealed himself and now you see him everywhere or you will see him in nothing because that's perspective and nothing outside is going to prove him to you. Your perspective will shape what you believe. And flesh and blood isn't going to reveal God. God is not going to get into a test tube and turn a different color and say, see, I'm God. But he can reveal himself to you. And then we have the responsibility to believe. And so flesh and blood didn't do this, but God revealed it to Peter. And the same thing is true for us. And so many times my prayer is, God, reveal yourself to that person. They might want to know all the answers, and I might not have the answers, but God, you can still reveal yourself. And then he goes on and he blesses Peter. I tell you that you are Peter, which means you're a stone, a rock. And on this rock, and it's more of a mass, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Again, this is another puzzling passage. Most believe that when he's talking about Peter and talking about the rock, they're two different things because they are two different words. Um, But the fact that they are connected in similarity is telling. And there's a number of things that it could mean, and I'm not going to be dogmatic on anyone. It seems to be definitely that Peter has come to a realization that Christ is who he said he was. He is something that we are to build our lives on, that that is what Jesus is referring to on this rock. The, the reality of what you said about me is the truth that I am going to build my church. But it's also saying that you are a part of that work. You are a rock on this massive rock. And on this, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's an important statement. Jesus said, I'm not worried. If you go to YouTube and and you do some kind of searches, you might see, oh, you know, these other religions, they're coming out. Oh, Christianity, it's dying down. There's not going to be, oh, no, what's going to happen? Oh, no, no, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail. Don't chill out. But I, I saw this YouTube, you know, Muslims, every Muslim family has like 22 kids. No, that's not true. They, they don't. And it doesn't matter. Do you know one of the greatest areas of revival of Christianity that's taking place in the world is taking place in the Muslim nations? That there are more Muslims coming to Christ now than ever before? Don't sweat it. Gates of hell aren't going to prevail against his church. He's, he's at work. This is something massive. And then he goes on and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, what's he talking about here? Well, to bind something means that it will be honored by God. And it's an agreement. It's a legal term. You're bound to that contract. Whatever you bind on earth means whatever things you are working to on this truth that I am the Christ, 
the son of the living God, then God is going to honor those things based on that truth and what you hold to on that truth. And the word loosed means permitted. Again, it's a legal term. So whatever things you permit, I'm going to permit as well. We see an incredible connection between Peter and Christ, between the church and Christ, because the church, after all, is the body of Christ. And what I think we need to get out of this, besides a lot of questions, is this understanding that we are intricately connected to the work of God, the kingdom of God, and what is going to be taking place here on earth. That it is involving us. That we are connected to the very work of God, and therefore there is responsibility to us and to the kingdom of heaven and to the work of God. There is responsibility, but have no fear, because whenever I think, oh no, (laughs) we're responsible, I might look around the room and say, we're in trouble. (laughs) Or maybe you would. I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Jesus again says, the gates of hell won't prevail. Don't worry. Recognize your responsibility, my responsibility to the work in the kingdom of heaven. That we are a part of it. And this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, he is the promise of God fulfilled, the living God manifested in human flesh. That truth is the truth that we hold. And how we yield that truth will bind things and will permit things. We have the very power of God given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And now we are responsible. You guys know I'm really big on responsibility. I think one of the tragedies that takes place in the church is that we negate our responsibility and say, well, God knows. Well, if God wants, God will do what he wants. God knows why that happened. I know why it happened too. Because you did this. Or you didn't do that. God knows. Well, yeah, he knows. Doesn't mean it's okay. You're responsible. The kingdom of heaven has now been entrusted to you. The the knowledge of who Jesus is, and this is what we're going to be getting into starting this Sunday, our new series, This Beautiful Mess, Practicing the Presence of the Kingdom of God. How do we move this truth forward in our world, that the King has come, that he is with us, and he has given us the keys to his kingdom? So that the kingdom is at work among us here and now. Yes, it's to come, but it's also taking place right now. How do we live with this knowledge that you've been given the keys to the kingdom, the truth of who Jesus is? How does that shape your activity? Because it should. And that's what we want to look at as we move forward. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why would he do this? 
because he knows what people are, they're going to want to elevate him. And it's interesting because he reveals himself as Messiah here. We know that Peter's brother Andrew in John chapter 1 said, hey, Jesus, we found this guy, he's, we think he's the Messiah. But it seems like they don't really believe it until about now. Is it getting warm in here now? No, I'm warm. Anyway. So he tells them, don't tell anybody. Because he knows that this truth, if people embrace it, will try and use it and will try and use him. It's a passage of scripture where Jesus said he did not reveal himself to man because he knew what was in man. He knew that they were going to try and take advantage of this truth. And so he didn't give himself over to people. But here it's an interesting thing that he reveals himself, he's revealed as the Messiah, which makes you wonder, what did they think about him previously? Who did they think he was? Just a prophet? Elijah? Jeremiah? Like the other people? And then they came to this understanding. Now, you're the promise of God. The son of the living God. You're unique. You see, we put our faith in Jesus. The son of the living God. Someone who is unique. Someone who's not connected to just the past but someone who is the promise of God living, who will live forevermore. That's where our faith is. That's who we trust in. He is the promise of God. And that's who we have faith in. Let's pray. I don't want to keep you guys any longer. There's cookies and coffee. Sugar and caffeine keep you up all night. Father, I pray more than anything, Lord, that we have been provoked in our relationship to you that we would check our hearts, that we would be careful and guarded against this leaven, this yeast of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, that seems to grow within us if we're not careful. This pride of who we are, this comparison of ourselves against others, whether it's people of other denominations or people who have other faiths, Lord, we have this tendency to to want to be above and want to prove ourselves right, and we can miss the heart that is compassionate, that wants to care for and help anyone, foreigner or not, to be aware of you, to see you as the living God. And so I pray that you would always check us and reveal yourself to us and that we would make that same declaration that Peter did, that you're the promise of God. You're the son of the living God. You are unique. We will listen to you. Lord, have your way in our lives. I pray that, again, the things that we talked about will continue in our minds and our thoughts after we leave this place, that they were provoking to continue in our relationship with you. Lord, lead us towards yourself and towards your heart. I do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.